Episode 44 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. We're talking about international policing with United Nations. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back to another episode of Tactical Breakdown. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate the support. Looking forward to this episode and letting you in on this conversation I had with Robert Rail. Robert is an international policing expert. He's worked with the United Nations Police Task Force throughout the world. He's an expert in understanding body language. He's written multiple books. He's really just a fascinating person and has tons of experience to go through and to talk with us about. So I'm super excited to let you in on that conversation. And as always, if you're enjoying this content, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to support us, all I ask is that you subscribe to the podcast. Um, it's really going to make sure that you get access to all of the training and all of these sessions that we put out there. And we're going to keep you up to date on all of the different summits that we're putting together and all the collaborations and, and organizations that we're working with. So I'm looking forward to being able to doing that with you. Now, let's uh, let's jump right into it. Let's get into this conversation I have with Robert and talking about international policing. Here you go. All right, Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, my man. I'm excited to have you here. It's a few months in the making, but uh, we finally got you on, dude. Thanks for coming on. Oh, Adam, it is my pleasure. You've got a great show. It's an honor to be on the show. I've, I've monitored a couple of prior programs. Uh, they're awesome, sir. Uh, we're get, you get a lot of great information out there for all my brothers and sisters in uniform. Man, I really appreciate that. It, you know, it's a it's a passion project of mine, and and I love doing it, and I love being able to uh, connect with guys like yourself, and and just get this information out there that's actionable. So, thank you, sir, for being on the show. And uh, so, for the person listening to this right now, if you're an officer or trainer, uh, Robert had 24 years as an officer in the Chicago area, and since then has spent the last 20 or so years always involved in law enforcement training. And right after your time as a peace officer, a police officer, I know you went overseas. And today what I wanted to talk about is specifically your book, um, which is Surviving the International War Zone. Um, it's a fantastic book. We're going to have links to it in the show notes page and everything. So if you're listening to this, you got to get on this book. I read through it. It was one of my favorite reads. There's so many stories. So Robert, the first thing I want to start off with is, if I had asked you to pick one story out of that book that you wrote to share with our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, one of the stories would be involving an officer, and it would be the scarf. And it, it, it was a situation where I was teaching, and I had a, I had a group of local officers in, 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 the, in, the, in the room with me, and it was in Kosovo in, in the Glogovac area. And it's a very, very depressed, primitive area, even for a war zone. And they all came in in these uniforms, and, and they, they were also slim and trim. But the reason why they were slim and trim is they ate one meal a day, and that's about all. And they walked everywhere. They had to walk everywhere. But they wanted to be police. They wanted to make a difference. And there was one officer in the class that had a scarf around his neck all the time. And I looked at him one day and I complimented him and I said, very nice scarf. And, 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 you know, he just gave me this very strange look. And I wrote a book on body signs, the unspoken dialogue. And he looked at me sideways, which is a trigger. And, and then he smiled and he put his hand on my shoulder, which is another body sign of, of coming together. And he said, please outside we talk. And I stepped out with him and he said, you, I respect, Robert, and, and he took the scarf off, and I saw the most jagged scar that I had seen. It was like a Frankenstein movie. It, it, the stitches and, and the scar from his left ear to the front of his throat, it was, it was horrendous. And he told me, he said, when I was a small boy, 
I, we were running along throwing rocks at the armor units that invaded our town. And one officer reached over, grabbed me by the hair, lifted me up on the side of a tank, and stabbed a knife into my neck and ripped it across my throat, laughed, and then threw me off into a ditch and kept driving. And I said, then what? Uh, you know, you're alive. And he goes, women from the local village ran down into the ditch, and they poured whiskey, rakia, on it and covered it with mud and some leaves that they had, and then they stitched it up with a knitting needle. And he was unconscious through all this from the blood loss. And then for the next three weeks, they fed him all kinds of broths and soups, and they fought his fever, and he survived. He survived, and, and it was just unbelievable. And he told me, he said, every day when I get up and I look in the mirror and I see this cut, he said, I am a police officer, and I will not be like the people who did this to me. Every day that God has given me to live, I will be fair with that day with all people. Wow. Just as you're, just as you're explaining that, like I, I'm trying to visualize that in my mind, and it's, it's so shocking to not only myself, but to anybody who is from, you know, a first world country. Some people just don't realize some of the atrocities and some of the things that happen in these other countries around the world. And even from members of other militaries or law enforcement from, from other countries, whether it be um, an invading force or something in country or local. And the thing is, Adam, I know, I know from your background with, with the Canadian military that you know what you're talking about. And that's why I deeply respect when you make a comment or, or, or you add something, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I do deeply respect your background, and I, I have a great respect for the Canadian background because my father-in-law was uh, Normandy Beach, and when when he got inside the beach and he got inside into the, the inland areas past the Normandy Beach, he, he ran into, uh, later in the days, he ran into a few Canadians, and he said, you know what, they they were... In in the desperate situation they were in, they were still funny as hell, and they were splitting food and anything else they could get their hands on. And he said they were just great officers, the Canadian military, to work with. And a lot of Americans just don't realize that the Canadians had a major, major invasion force on Normandy Beach. You know, it's it's, uh, and I think this came up in a previous episode. Or maybe it was just a conversation I had with somebody who was on the show, but we uh, we talked about uh, D-Day and we talked about the invasion of Normandy and and uh, we went over the different beaches. Obviously, there was five beachheads. Um, the Canadians held one, which is Juneau. Um, and then you had, uh, I, oh, now I'm going to butcher this and everyone's going to email me. So you had <laughs> you had gold, which I believe was the, the force from the UK. Um, and then there was sword, and, uh, oh, God, why can't I Ameri- remember the American ones now? So you had Sword, Utah, and Omaha. Is that right? Yes, I, I think that's it. And he, he, he remarked, he said, you know, it, it was just, it was unbelievable. And when they landed, uh, he was in the Big Red 1 division, and he said, when we landed, we didn't know where we were. And when we got inland, we still didn't know where we were. We just fought. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's interesting when you talk D-Day. Nobody and not a lot of people realize this, but the Canadian force that landed on Juneau Beach actually made it the furthest inland out of any of the five uh, beachheads uh, on that day. So that's always interesting for people to find out, and uh, and something that we can kind of hold over. I, we don't have a lot of uh, military superiority over the United States, especially now, but uh, but uh, we got one over on you on D-Day. So so there you go. I'll tell you, your your people are outstanding, and and I've. I trained with them, and I had them as fellow trainers when I was in uh, Bosnia and Kosovo, and and uh, especially Kosovo, and they were just super people. One of the reasons why I was really excited to have you on is you have such an extensive experience working in in so many countries. Um, you know, I I think when we talked earlier, you were saying that you know you've been involved in in training or evaluating officers in over sixty. Uh, 
partner nations. Uh, you were you were actually a member of the United Nations International Police Task Force, and from what I understand, was you were uh, a trainer and evaluator uh, for these international police forces. You'd go in, you'd pick the best of the best, and those would be the ones selected to go overseas into these war zones. Can you give us a little bit of that background and? what your role was, and then we can start getting into kind of the training and evaluation portion of it. You know, my, my role was to, to go in and evaluate them and actually test them on, on firearms and so many other things. But the thing is, even though I, I thought in my mind, well, I'm an American police officer and I know, you know, I've got all these years behind me, I ended up learning so much more than I was teaching. Every, every, country that I went to had something that I ended up learning. It was fantastic. And to take an example, I, I would go in and I would, uh, I went to Moscow, one of my, one of my last ones and, and the Russian officers, they were absolutely outstanding. They were, uh, they were, they were sharp. And also their English was excellent. It, it really surprised me. Uh, but they do the sambo. Which is a, their form of all-around fighting and self-defense, and they're trained. They're trained not to be specific to an instrument, but to use anything that they can get their hands on. They will fight with a shovel. They will fight with a branch. But the main thing about a Spetsnaz officer, they will fight, and they are not going to back down. And it's it's not going to be an easy time with them. They are very rightly proud. Of, of everything in their unit and especially being Spetsnaz. And if you become injured or something in the Spetsnaz training, you don't come back and take it a second time. You're out. So when you see that striped shirt, that striped T-shirt underneath their uniform, it means they've been through a hell of their own, very comparable to Canadian Special Forces or American Special Forces or French and Brit. It's a brotherhood. It's a it's it's a feeling for all these all these people who participated and gave their all. Every country has its own special special part of uh, uh, training and and understanding. There is such a difference in policing around the world, whether it be with the criteria for officers to be uh, sworn in, um, if they are sworn in, um, whether or not the it's a, an independent police agency or it's it's somehow wrapped in with the, the military for that country and, and all these different things in between, including, like you said, different types of training um, and methodologies and systems for training. In your experience, when we're talking about you're going around to all these countries and evaluating all these officers from all these different systems, how do you standardize an evaluation process when you have such a variety of, of systems and training methodologies? Uh, with great difficulty. You know, uh, taking the firearms, for, me, for example, we, we made sure that they had the ability to assemble, to disassemble and reassemble and to work with their weapons, whatever weapons that they used. Uh, we, you know, in Russia, it was the Makarov. In, in, uh, in a lot of areas, it was, uh, you know, uh, other types uh, of uh, weapons, anything from Glocks to, uh, to Berettas to other, other types. But they had to be able to function and to shoot. And uh, in a couple of areas, uh, we, we had one where they had new weapons issued to them and, and they weren't up on the weapons, but it meant so much to them that they passed that even if they discharged their weapon in their holster and shot themselves in the leg, they would limp up and they would look at you and go, please, I'm okay. I try again. I try again. And, and your heart goes out to them, but no, they failed. Uh, standing there bleeding, they, they failed. They didn't make it, but people do not realize that, at the time, the going expense fee for an officer in 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 Kosovo, whoa, that was going back to roughly 2002. That was uh, 3,000 euros, and that had to cover all their expenses, and plus it gave them extra money. But the actual money that they got from their own country, say if it was uh, Ghana or or Senegal or Bangladesh, 
would be anywhere from $35 to $50 a month. So for them to be a, a member of the task force, it was like winning the lottery. It was like a dream come true. And for them to fail was, was just an incredible disappointment. They would, they would serve wounded. They would, they would do anything to participate. But we had to make the decision that some were qualified and some weren't. On average, how many officers did you pull from each individual agency or was it based off of like numbers? So example, if you're, you know, if you're pulling officers from Russia um, would be different than if you're pulling officers from a much smaller country with a much smaller uh, selection pool. So was there, was there a standard that you pulled? Did, Did the UN set regulations or specifications on how many you should have from each given country? How did that work? I was never approached or ordered, not that I would obey an order, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sorry, I've always been a rogue. But uh, when, when I went to Russia, there were 45 officers that I, that I tested, and one officer uh, failed in a very unique way. He, he went up, and there was a square target with a black center, and they had to hit a certain number of rounds into the black center. So this officer, uh, I found out later, had a newborn child at home, and he didn't want to go. So what he did was he perfectly placed one round on each corner of the target and one right dead center in the middle. And I looked at the target, and it was, you know, we're talking brilliant shooting here. And I go, you know you didn't make it. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand, Robert. And I go, the very best to you. <laughs> Yeah. But that I would have another situation where I'd be in uh, Bangladesh, where we where we tested like 300, and we out of 300 we passed, I think 45, and that was it. And uh, different countries, some of them don't have the uh, the people that can qualify. They either don't have the skills or they don't have the money to pay for the ammunition for the training. This is a this is a big problem in third world countries. You and I, Canada, United States, we 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 can shoot a, a huge amount of ammo for a high cost and that's part of training. But not in these countries. If you go to like Bangladesh, they're they're making they're making about thirty five dollars a month. Plus they get uh plus they get about a hundred pounds of beans and a hundred pounds of rice and they get a place to live for them and their family where they have running water. That's it. Wow. And, and other than that, there, there is the situation where they, they have the opportunity to have the white sleeves. And you're going to say, well, what are the white sleeves? Well, that's where they put on these white sleeves, like armbands, and then that gives them the authority to go out in the middle of the street and direct traffic and or stop people and find them. So you can you can use your thoughts from there, which which brings me to a a, a story where I was in uh, I was driving in Bosnia and I'm on the one road leading to the coast. You know they have one road that leads everywhere for the landmines and everything else. We're, we're driving with I'm with a colleague and we see a, an officer standing out and he's got a placard which says stop. So we stop. And he walks up to us with a radar gun. It was the most beat-up hand radar gun I had ever seen in my life. And on the back of it, he had put, like, a number, like 55 in red, and stuck it on where it should be the electronic uh, uh, indicator for your speed. Now, the cord was just dangling loose, which is normally plugged into your squad. And he's standing there, and he's stopping cars and showing them this, and soliciting fines. <laughs> it was, you know, and, and I look at my partner, I go, can, I'm sorry, but pardon me, but can you believe this shit? This is just, this is just unreal. So we, we got out and we, we, we took his radar gun. We took his shirt. We took his badge. We, you know, go home and, and, uh, we left him with his shoes and basically his underwear. But, uh, in that scenario, I mean, I know listening to this, my initial thought, 
for a split second. Don't don't judge me. Was okay. Well, so he's taking fines, uh, so like handing out tickets, like we would here, right? So it's like, here's your ticket. You know, go to you know, mail it in or whatever, or go to the courthouse. Um, not the case in those countries. That that fine is usually paid at the spot in cash to the officer. Is that right? Right, and there's there's no there's no paperwork. There's no he doesn't ask for a driver's license. Nobody has one. It's very raw. It's very brutal. It's very primitive. But if you're going to go to a foreign country, be prepared to run into these things. It reminds me of an, an, another story. I'll try and be brief, but it reminds me of another story. I'm I'm with a with a a big German partner, and I mean a big German partner, and we're driving, and and we see this. We see this rather idyllic scene, and, and it looks rather nice. It's it's this old man, and he's got a cart and a horse, a ugly old tired horse, and and a and a whole bunch of little girls playing in a field. We stopped, and we got out, stretched our legs, and we walked over, and and the old guy gave us a really mean look, and I thought, okay, something's not right here. So we 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 started to talk to him, and he wouldn't talk to us, and my German partner. He, he takes a canvas in the back and he starts to lift it up. And the old man took a switch and slapped his hand with it and goes, no, no. And that's not going to stop the, the guy I was with. And he just, he just shoved him back, lifted up the canvas. He goes, what's this, guys? And, and I go, what, you know, what is this? And he goes, brass, it's brass. And he was angry, and the second we saw it was brass. This is ammunition brass that this guy was recovering from a field. And what he had done was he had driven through the villages, and he had picked up little girls, and he had given the, 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 the parents a loaf of bread so that he could have the girl for the day. And then he'd get a cart full of girls, and he'd drive to a field, and he'd throw a ball out in the field for the girls to play with to see if there were landmines in the field. Wow. And when we realized that's what he was doing, we had a, uh, how do I say, we had an in-depth meeting with him. <laughs> a and, tete on uh, tete, if you would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, we really did what you call How can I say this well? Oh, well, the hell with it. Let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, he got a street adjustment that, that was right there with what he deserved. Uh, I'm quite certain he lived, but, uh, we, you know, we got, we, we, the, the girls were quite scared of us. We had to coax them back into the wagon without them stepping on something. We were just, we were really bent out of shape. I mean, we were not in the best of, uh, of mood. And we got him in the wagon. We gave we gave the the horse whatever it was mule crack in the rear end, and it just started walking back home. So there was no jail. There was no judge. There was it had to be the instant social justice that you deemed appropriate at that moment. So it, it wasn't a sophisticated situation or adjustment for society, but that's what it was because the. Girls in, in that area were not considered valued. They, you know, boys were highly valued because they had the ability to work a farm. But the girls, no. They, they had no value. They were so horribly victimized by the society that they were born into. It was unbelievable in that area of uh, Kosovo. You know, it's, it's like in, in, in Bosnia, there's a chapter in the book, Surviving the International War Zone. It's called Bloodstained Apples. There, there's an apple tree, and they go out and they plant landmines around the edge of the apples where when in the fall, when the tree is full of apples and the branches bend down, that's where they plant the anti-personnel, the little hockey puck landmines, all the way around the tree. So when the children come to get the apples, they take them out. And I, I talked to one of them. I'm trying to keep a straight face. This was about this was months later, you know, about that situation. And he goes, "Well, it's understandable. That way, my children will have less enemies to fight when 
we kill their children. And that's the way he looks at it. Different world, man. That's um... never, never in my life had I encountered hate at that level. I mean, I've seen people that hate me and hate my uniform and hate everything else, but not like that. I mean, you could have cut the air with a knife for the, the hatred. You know, I, I've personally know uh, soldiers that that served overseas in Bosnia Herzegovina. And, you know, some of the stories that they come back with are along the same lines uh, that you, you would just mention there. It kind of makes your skin crawl thinking about it. Like mine are like, if somebody was sitting with me right now, they'd see I'm like sweating profusely for some reason. <laughs> I'm sitting here just because it, it elicits such a visceral physiological response. And the people listening to this right now that may be hearing this for the first time, they don't understand if you're if you're in a first world country, if you're in Canada and the United States, if if you're you know if you're sitting there in in Britain or in Australia, and you're listening to this and you've never been exposed to the atrocities that have taken place over in in other countries internationally, you should maybe do some research, look it up, you know, get this book that you wrote. There's so many, there's so much information out there now. People are starting to speak up and saying, you know, this this isn't okay. Like this shit has to stop. And the start of that was like you said, when the UN puts together these police task force to to go out there and make a difference and make a change, which kind of leads me into my next question is you had talked about, you know, dealing with this one incident with this one, um, uh, I'm going to call him a, let's see, a douchebag for lack of a better term. What were your ROEs and what, what type of uh, authority and how was it granted to you? Was it granted through the UN and like through NATO or was it, is it, was it something that came out from each individual country that the task force was deployed to? How did that work? Well, that would be, that would be something for the determination of the United Nations. I was, I was also use of force officer. So we, we had a very simple ruling, you know, they're coming at you and they're weaponed. There, there's no situation with a warning shot. If you can, if you can shoot their legs out, fine. If not, you just go center body mass with repeated rounds. If if they're running away and it's a criminal situation, you take them out. That was very clear and cut. Now, some countries, uh, it, it, it's interesting. Like Spain is an example. If a person is coming at you with a knife, they're not authorized to shoot them. They, they have to try and fight them off with a baton or handle the situation uh, according to their official procedures. You know, official and what happens on the street. Adam, you and I both know, and all the listeners out there, all our brothers and sisters in uniform know, on the street is a, can be a different world. But in Spain, that's, you know, that's, that's not accepted. But if you get into an area in, say, Senegal in Africa, they have a weapon or something and you tell them to drop it and they don't, they're out. They're gone. They'll take them down for that. By the way, the Senate, the Senegalese police department, they were one of the, one of the sharpest departments in uh, Africa. They were very, very disciplined. They were very sharp troops. That's interesting. It's interesting. You don't think of all these, there's so many countries in the world and each one does the job a little bit differently, right? And everybody has their own trainers and their own instructors and methodologies, like we kind of mentioned at the beginning. And, and that's one of the reasons why this podcast is out there. It's, you know, I want to start bringing guys in, girls in that are experts from all these different areas and saying, hey, listen, what are you guys doing right now? And maybe it's applicable, maybe it's not, but it's interesting nonetheless to see how each of these individual police forces around the world actually conduct their training and what results they get from it. Aside from them, was there any police force in any other countries that you found were just that, you know, that next level that, that where you're like, these guys are doing something right and maybe we should be taking some notes from what they're doing? Well, I'm not going to say right or wrong, but uh, as an example, it was a unique uh, situation with uh, Sweden. The uh, officers in Sweden, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're carrying a semi-automatic and they are not allowed to have one in the tube, in the, in, you know, in the, in the chamber. So they literally, under, under death threat situations, they have to draw and they have to jack around in. They have to go through something that's going to take 
at least a second. And a lot of times that's too long. There's so much comment, you know, like the other day I, I was online with LinkedIn and everybody was saying, you know, they're, they're criticizing somebody for having a, a finger in the trigger guard instead of having their finger straight alongside the trigger guard. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, I can see your point for safety. That's true. Cause they're talking about, well, it gives you a split second to think and, and what if you trip and you could discharge and, you know, if I was a police officer still, I could see that. But after coming back from a couple of situations where let's just say I got into it, I needed that time. And I, I, I couldn't play any games. I, I couldn't, I wasn't the safest person there, but I came home. I'm here. It's like I said to you earlier, I'd, I'd rather be lucky than good. Yeah, I mean, the firearms safety and firearms training is so different. And, and just in my own personal experience, just even speaking uh, with Canadian officers, uh, trainers, and then those in, in the Canadian forces, um, it's so different from what we, what we learned in the military versus what's taught um, in police agencies. A lot of it's coming around, like a lot of it's getting standardized to the, the latest and greatest. But I can imagine just the, the vast differences um, around the world on, on how people are trained in firearms. And it's, uh, it, it'd be interesting. You could almost probably do a whole episode, if not more, um, for our podcast just on firearms <laughs> safety specific training throughout the world. That'd be really interesting. But if somebody's listening to this show and I mean, not that oh, hopefully you haven't, uh, we haven't scared them away from, from doing international policing. Um, <laughs> if, if there's anybody listening to this show and I mean, there's opportunities out there for almost anyone. If, if you're in Canada, the U S uh, any of the um, Commonwealth nations, there's opportunity to, to be involved with at some level with either uh, international task force or things like that. I mean, obviously there's going to be a lot of hoops to jump through to get those postings. What kind of words of advice or words of wisdom would you give to somebody who's thinking about doing something like an international task force and kind of what are the first steps to, to go about that process? Well, I would contact them. That's the first thing you want to do. You want to contact them, but you want to have uh, an ability. So have a specialty. And you don't want to be a jack of all trades. Uh, you don't want to, you know, have a, a resume that covers absolutely everything. Uh, you you want to focus. You want to. There's always a great need for trainers everywhere in the world. So be a trainer, but have a specialty where you're really, really proficient and write about it. Write about it. Talk about it. Teach. Get involved, have contacts in other countries, network with police associations. Every country has a police association and work with the, you know, contact that association, send them something you've written. If you can do it for, you know, expenses only if you can, but contact, touch base and don't feel bad if you're refused or it doesn't work or, or they're, they're not available. Stay positive, stay complimentary to them. Keep supporting them as much as you can, especially Internet doesn't cost us anything. We can send so much data and material through the Internet to a third world country, to a first world country, to other countries, and stay active with it. Don't get disheartened. Stay there. But have a specialty and be good at it and keep working at it. And also, the day that you, you do your time and you retire out of your department, the biggest mistake you can do, please don't retire. Never retire. Keep teaching. Keep working. Keep learning. There's always something new to learn. All these countries, they can teach you something. We can learn from the things they do right, but odds are we're going to learn a lot more from the things they do wrong. And that's all right. When something goes right, you, you get into a fight or something, uh, on the street, you go, wow, I won. I feel great. But what did you learn? You won, but what did you learn? When you, you get your butt kicked, when all of a sudden your hands are too low and you, you get hit a couple of times, you learned. 
You learned get your hands up. You learned block with your nightstick. You learned watch your distance with somebody. You learned when they look at you with a side vision, that's, that's telling you something. When, when they put weight on their lead foot, they're coming forward on you. We always learn when things go wrong, as long as we survive. It's like I say, when you get into a fight, one person, one person survives, one person loses. Nobody wins. There's so much to unpack in, uh, in what you said there. So here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we're going to have to have you back on the show, uh, and specifically because the one thing that I know you were kind of leading into there was your, the other area of expertise, the other book that you, you've written on body language and, and threat assessments and, and all those types of things. Real quickly, can you tell us a bit about what brought about that and some of the things that you think are actionable in, in, in that uh, area of training as well? I'm a people watcher. Um, not, not only for, for confrontations where somebody's going to throw a punch at you, where they start leaning, where the head tilts, where the eyes narrow, where they start clenching their teeth, but also other things. I, I remember, I remember we, we picked up a guy with an extensive criminal background for just, uh, all kinds of things. He was very good at rolling people over, uh, you know, battery on the street, arm robbery, everything else. And I said, okay, you know, you, you can either eat the one bologna sandwich or I can go out and I can get you a McDonald's and fries and a, and a vanilla shake. And you tell me something to teach me something about what the hell you do as a thug on the street. And he goes, hey, it's a deal. Just make it chocolate. So I went and I got him this stuff and I sit down next to his uh next to the to the bars and uh, in a chair and he sits and we we talk and he says you know what i watch people go into the bank and i i would encourage everybody listening now take the time sit about a half block off watch people going into a bank the women will go into the bank and they'll be swinging the purse at their side they'll go into the bank then they'll come out if they've got that purse now tucked under their arm tight and they're walking with purpose like in a straight line Walking straight ahead, there's money in the purse. So he's going to go after it. He's going to get behind him. He's going to knock him out and just grab the purse because he knows there's money in it. The men will walk out. They'll walk in. They'll be relaxed. They'll walk out of the bank, and they'll constantly be touching some area of their, of their jacket or their pants where their wallet is that they just put money into. He said, they tell me. They're just shouting it out. Hey, I got money. It's in this pocket, and here it is. Or it's in my purse. It's in my wallet. Here it is. And I thought, okay, I wonder if that's true. So I checked it out, and he was dead right. He was dead on. It was it was the best quarter pounder I ever bought for somebody. I learned I learned a lot. It brings back so many things to me when I talk about training with people, and especially instructors. Everybody likes to think that we're the smartest people in the room, right? Instructors are like, ah, obviously I'm here for a reason. When, when, we, talk, when we talk to officers, I mean, there is such value in, in cultivating those relationships, even with whether it be a criminal element or, or somebody who you caught doing something. Maybe you can parlay that into gathering information like you just said. And you know what? I always like to say, you know, Criminals aren't as dumb as everybody thinks they are. And in most cases, there are a few steps ahead of where we are trying to catch them. If you can get somebody to share that information, like, hey, this is the newest thing that we're doing now because there's a massive gap here that no one seems to realize. I mean, the, the amount of useful information out there is crazy, um, but you have, to be, you have to know how to access it and you have to be willing to kind of put yourself out there to try to get it. So thank you for that. That's a fantastic point. Hey, it's it's my pleasure. You know, and there and there was one other thing that that I remembered with the uh, with training and and working with the the officers in in Spain. I was talking to them on a couple of issues, and one is they say, well, you know, so many so many people all over the world are are training for every situation to develop. and they they have a different physical technique that they teach for each situation. And the thing is, they believe in taking one physical technique and then using the one physical technique and applying it to 
say, 10 situations instead of teaching 10 physical skills and having it handled 10 situations. Under stress, we don't remember 10. We remember one. If you teach someone how to walk two different ways, they will always stumble. They will always fall down. We walk very well, but we only walk one way. You know, it's like when I was training and working with the uh, police of India. Uh, they they have a they have a, they have a, a special unit called the Gurkha, and uh, I, I I spent some time with the Gurkha, and and I I learned so much from the Gurkha. They carry a knife in a cross draw. I carry my gun now in a cross draw because what do you do if you get one arm shot? Tradition in in our countries is you don't carry a cross draw. On your dominant uh, hip, yeah, yeah, you know, it, 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 there's so many, there's so many things in training that we could sit down and talk about for so many hours. But what it comes down to is, to to our brothers and sisters in uniform on the street, what are you comfortable with? What would you be most comfortable and efficient and skillful at? And if something goes wrong, can you still perform? An academy is, is, is one way to do it for everybody. But then when you're out of academy, do what works for you if you can. That is critically important. My The little hamster in my brain is spinning right now because um, all I'm thinking about is like, if you had, your, if you had a firearm, like a, a regular officer nowadays, they're carrying it cross-draw, guaranteed someone's going to bring up weapon retention and a suspect's ability to disarm you easier having it forward facing versus the standard placement that would be that would be a very interesting conversation to have let with, me uh, let me answer it let me answer it not not my answer because i said the same thing to the gurkha and the and the gurkha smiled at me the gurkha officer smiled and said would you rather have them go for your gun in front of you or behind you where you don't know they're doing it or can't see them Oh, that's a very interesting so, point. What I did when when I was working with the Gurkha in Kosovo and Bosnia and, and, and other areas, when I was working with the, the Russians and when I was working with the officers from Prague and, and some really outstanding officers in Senegal, was I had to just not teach. I had to just listen. I had to ask. I don't, when I'm talking, I'm not learning, but when I, when I eventually shut up, I start to learn. I ask a question and then I shut up and I look at them and I smile. I always smile and they will talk and I don't interrupt them. I let them talk. Some of the things they say, no, I can't go with it. But other things I go, wow, I never questioned that in my life. And even though we may not agree on a straight finger outside a trigger guard, even though we, you know, I definitely don't agree with not having a one bullet in the tube, in the barrel. And you start getting into other issues as, as, as cross draw and weapon retention and, and other issues. It just goes so far. It goes so far. One, one officer was on stage teaching, and he was also teaching use of force in a war zone. And one of the, one of, <laughs> one of the Americans stood up and and uh, said, we're not issued handcuffs. Why aren't we issued handcuffs? We're, we're incomplete in our equipment. And the, the officer on stage doing the presentation just smiled, looked at him and goes, we do not handcuff dead people. <laughs> oh, wow. it's, you know, he told him, he said, it's a war zone. This is a war zone. You've got to set your mind. Are you in country? Are you out of country? Are you in a war zone? Are you, you know, what are you going to do? There's so many decisions to be made. That's why, that's why this is leading us to another topic, uh, Adam, which is near and dear to my heart, is, is <clears throat> there's such a conflict when you initially come back from a war zone. I had trouble walking on grass because Bosnia, when I, when I came back from Bosnia, that was all landmines and they were, they were everywhere. And I came home. And I'm home, and I still, it still was in my mind not to walk on grass, not to, you know, 
the things go with you. But the more you're in a war zone, the more so many of our people from from our countries are in war zones, then they come back and they're they're in the situation here in the States. Our suicide rates are so brutally high, they're they're worse than the combat death rates. And we're losing so many people to conflicts of their mind, to conflicts of 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 how they feel about themselves and society and their place now. It's it's really devastating. We have to be there for all our our sisters and brothers in uniform. We have to constantly be aware what's their attitude, how are they doing. I've had partners kill themselves, and uh, uh, you always have the thought, you know, what could I have done? Did I miss something? You know, I must have missed something, but it's it's a, a devastating issue, and we need to constantly work on it. We all take, everybody listening right now, we all take an oath, but we never take an un-oath. That oath is with us forever. You know, you and I are, you know this about me, a lot of what we do on this show is to bring awareness and information when it comes to mental health, not only of police officers, but any of our our men and women in uniform, whether they be military emergency response or, or anything. The amount of officers in the U.S. alone, and, and this almost gets brought up almost every interview I do, but we talk about um, in 2019 because the numbers have come out and there was over 200 officers that took their own lives um, and significantly less that were killed in active duty incidents. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, such, yeah. there's such a discrepancy there um, and we always talk about training and we always talk about what's the next best thing that we can do to help protect our officers and we start we have to start shifting the conversation to preparing them for what the job is about what they can face and the the physiological and psychological repercussions of having to deal with people on the worst days of their lives having to deal with these force on force incidents having to deal with officer involved shootings having to you know, respond and give notices to families after their loved ones have been killed. These are things that nobody likes talking about because, you know, it's not the, you know, rah, rah, let's go to the shoot house and and run through scenarios and kick in doors because it's, that's the fun stuff and rolling around on the mat. It's, but we have to start shifting the focus and and integrating the mental health and, and aspect into all parts of training and, uh, and thank you for bringing that up because it's something that I'm all, obviously always passionate about. Um, I'm sharing that information. So uh, I'm excited because we're going we're gonna to have a chance to, to get you back on, I'm sure, um, to speak more about that. And I would love to do actually an episode now, like you said, something in, in the idea in the realm of reintegration or returning from a war zone or returning from a deployment um, whether they be as a as a peace officer, as a member of a task force, or as a member of the military, and things that we can do to help support people before they go over and then after they come back. So if you're willing to, I'd love to have you on to discuss that uh, as a as a full topic for the show as well. That would be my honor. Uh, any any way I can help, uh, any any way I can uh, I I can travel somewhere and put on and put on training for for a, a myriad of different programs would be my pleasure. I'm brainstorming here with what little brain I've got left, but, but it would be, it would be an idea for, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to go just about anywhere in the world for expenses only and, and take anything that is gets into the, in, into the, uh, into the bank, give it to, to a program that will help out our, our sisters and brothers in uniform. And and give to these causes and and work that out for them. Uh, I'm sure we could get some instructors together, and then anybody attending would just pay what they wanted, and we could we could just put on a, a, a tremendous day, two, three, whatever it takes. That would just be a, a a win-win situation for everybody and good fellowship, all of us together. 
yeah, I got something for you. We'll uh, we'll talk offline here uh, because I'm not going to roll this out to everybody listening just yet. A uh, little teaser for everybody, uh, but we're working on something just like that. Uh, getting together a, uh, a international group of experts uh, to put some content together and uh, and get it out there to everybody around the world. So I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to have you involved with that. I'll talk to you, like I said, a little bit offline here, um, but we can sort out the details it, before we go. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, if they want to learn more about what you're doing, um, if they want to, if if it's an agency that wants to fly you out to do some consulting or anything like that, uh, where can they find you and uh, and what kind of stuff do you have out there for everybody? I've got anything that I have as a resource material from police PowerPoints, which I have a massive collection, police and military training PowerPoints on every subject of terrorism and, and training. Uh, those are just, you, you want to, I'll put them on a disc and send them to you. But as far as anything else, just contact me either through LinkedIn or you just get me on uh, Kosovo, uh, RRR at Yahoo.com. That's K-O-S-O-V-O-R-R-R at Yahoo.com. And it's always my pleasure to hear from, hear from my colleagues. Right on, brother. All of that, uh, those links, all of that stuff, if you want to find Robert, it's going to be on the show notes page. So make sure to check that out uh, in your app. Just click down to the show notes. The links are all going to be in there for you. Uh, Robert, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today uh, and jump on this call. And uh, I'm looking forward to having you back on, my friend. It's been an honor. And Adam, keep up the great work. You got a great show and and you're just having some uh, great purpose. It's a great purpose that you're putting out there. Right on, man. I appreciate that, brother. And uh, stay safe. You too, buddy. All right. That wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to iletsummit.com. Check that out. The live version is done and gone. That took place in July 2020. But you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very, very, very low price. Make sure to use the promo code BREAKDOWN to save even more. Check that out at iletsummit.com. Thanks again for being here with us at the Tactical Breakdown. And until next time, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.